enjoy the dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. Welcome to part two of Star Classifications. You can probably listen to this podcast separately, but definitely go back and listen to the last episode for variable stars and juicy feminism quotes with commentary. In this one, I'll be talking more about how we got to our current star catalog and how stars are currently classified. In the show notes at, all one word, fill the void, dash with, dash space, dot tumblr, dot com, I'll have some links to current star catalogs online, but I warn you there, well, I'm not an astronomer, uh, not even an amateur one, so they were a bit beyond me. But feel free to check them out and read what actual astronomers and actually the U.S. Navy on one website have to say about the best star catalogs out there right now. There are a lot of options, despite the fact that there are only so many visible stars and really only so many types of stars. What we see when telescopes go up and observatories open for the night are the several paths a star can take and how far down that road they've gone. We're seeing stars at different stages of life, as well as different distant locations. Yet again, we come to Einstein's conception of the universe as a place where space, as well as time, matter when you're trying to map an object's position. Stars start out as the gravitational attraction of nebulous gases. But from that first compression and heat that start a nuclear reaction at the core of a star, there are several different ways a star can go evolutionarily. An average star, like our own sun, burns its fuel at an average rate, as hydrogen atoms fuse to form helium in a process called nuclear fusion. When a star begins releasing energy, that means it's no longer contracting into a dense cloud. At this point, it's in its main sequence. Our sun is actually in its main sequence. As a yellow star, it's a medium temperature, about 5,500 degrees Celsius. Hotter stars burn blue and cooler stars burn red, but we'll get there. A star like our sun, which is average sized and which we compare all other stars to, will remain in its main sequence for about 10 billion years until all of its hydrogen has fused into helium atoms. Then reactions will start to occur around the core of the star and the helium will become carbon. The star will begin to expand, cool, and dim into a red giant. As the helium core runs out and the outer edges of the star begin to drift away as a gas, the core left behind will become a white dwarf star until it stops shining, at which point it will be a dead star. But there's another path a gaseous nebula can take as it's first starting to coalesce. Massive stars are a possible path. These stars are huge, and they burn much more brightly. These are the blue-lit stars that I mentioned earlier. They shine until all of their hydrogen has fused into helium. But while this takes billions of years in average stars, it can take only millions of years in massive stars. 
Massive stars then become red supergiant stars, with that helium core surrounded by a shell of expanding gas. Over a million years, more nuclear reactions occur in the core of this supergiant until the core collapses in less than a second, causing an explosion called a supernova that shines brighter than the entire galaxy for a time as the outer layers of the star are blasted outwards. In a champagne supernova, a champagne supernova in the sky. There are then two paths a massive star that has gone supernova may take. If the surviving core is 1.5 to 3 solar masses, basically 1.5 or 3 times larger than our own sun, then it contracts into a small, very dense, very fast-spinning neutron star. Neutron stars that are spinning very, very fast are called pulsars, a kind of variable star that emits light pulses usually between 0.0014 seconds and 8.5 seconds, so very fast pulsing. But if the core left behind by the supernova is more than three times the size of our sun, the core collapses into a black hole. Noting a star's position in the sky is all well and good, but what star catalogs often tried to do, and increasingly tried to do as we got telescopes, better telescopes, stellar photography, spectroscopy, charge-coupled devices, was map a star's position on its own timeline. That wasn't what people realized they were doing at first, of course, because the way to track a star's age is by looking at factors like how bright it is on one day compared to another, its color, how it looks compared to other stars that share traits with it, etc. So, before telescopes existed, but also before light pollution, we had our star catalogs. The first star catalog was, of course, Mulapin. Remember the first episode of this podcast? It only really hit major stars and constellations, though. In 130 BCE, Hipparchus of Rhodes had his own star catalog. He was a Greek astronomer, the guy who measured the distance from the Earth to the Moon. I mentioned him briefly in the last episode. Then we have Ptolemy's Almagest from around 120 CE, which catalogs 48 constellations and 1,022 stars. The Middle Eastern world translated, preserved, and improved upon the Almagest as Muslim and Jewish academics throughout the medieval period observed the stars, revised astronomical tables, and published various star catalogs. The astronomer Al-Batani, known in Latin as Al-Bategnius, published Al-Zij al-Mumtahan, the validated astronomical table. This work, published in the 900 CE, listed 533 stars in addition to determining, to within a couple minutes, the length of the solar year. One of the last star catalogs before the introduction of the telescope, which happened in 1609, was Johann Baer's catalog, Uranometria. It came out in 1603, so it really only had six years before it suffered the curse that I think we all understand in the 21st century, rapid obsolescence. In Uranometria, though, Bayer introduced the idea of naming stars for their constellation and then adding a Greek letter to organize them according to their relative brightness within that constellation. Um, For example, the brightest star in a constellation would be labeled with the constellation name and then Alpha. The second brightest star would be Beta, and so on. It wasn't a perfect system, but it was an early attempt to categorize stars by brightness. 
I actually mentioned something about this in the first episode of this podcast when I talked about the constellation Triangulum and the three stars that make it up. I said the base stars are white stars designated as Beta and Gamma Trianguli, with the yellow-white star Alpha Trianguli as the point. These designations come from Bayer's Uranometria. It must be said our current star catalogs are a bit of a mess, but just because so many influential astronomers came out with really good ways of describing and denoting the visible qualities of stars, even before telescopes. But of course, designations and descriptions of stars only improved once telescopes appeared on the astronomy scene. Remember Edmund Halley, the man who discovered Halley's Comet? He compiled the first catalog of southern stars in 1679. He's getting more and more interesting as I see him pop up in astronomical history, I've got to say. Halley also edited John Flamsteed's catalog entry in Historia Coelestis Britannica, which was a really messy draft of what Flamsteed would eventually publish in 1725, the Stellarium Interantium Catalogus Britannicus. The Historia Coelestis had the constellations numbered, though, while the Stellarium Interantium did not, and those so-called Flamsteed numbers would continue to be used in some catalogs for centuries. These larger, more generalists of stars were followed by more specialized catalogs, like William Herschel's catalog of 269 double stars, which he published in 1782. Another specialized catalog was the Messier List, begun by Charles Messier in the 8th century as part of his lifelong search for comets. He ultimately discovered 15 of them, but more importantly, he saw a lot of things that weren't comets but looked like them. Comets look like fuzzy little clouds that stay close to the sun for a few days before their orbit takes them out of the sun's range. The fuzz is the sun's heat burning off gases and other materials from the object, but they don't flash or flare out the way asteroids do. They come back again and again. Messier first saw a small, cloudy object in the constellation Taurus. This was a leftover supernova explosion that's known as the Crab Nebula today. And he started recording these objects so they wouldn't be confused with comets. He and his colleagues cataloged between 103 and 110 deep sky objects. The actual number of cataloged Messier objects depends on who you ask. A deep sky object is anything that isn't individual stars or something from our solar system. It's a classification that includes nebulae, galaxies, and star clusters, and it has its roots in amateur astronomy. There are actually amateur astronomer challenges today that encourage backyard astronomers to search for specific deep sky objects. Some people try to find every object in the Messier catalog in one night. A man named Patrick Moore recently made a more refined version of the Messier catalog, ordering the objects by their brightness, where Messier had ordered his according to which object was discovered when. Moore published his catalog in 1995 under his other surname, Caldwell, because the M initial was already taken by Messier. Moore's list also includes some bright deep-sky objects that Messier ignored because they were obviously not comets, and he was trying to weed out the suspiciously comet-like anomalies. One of the first major stellar survey catalogs was Bonner Dirk Musterung, compiled by the German astronomer Friedrich Wilhelm Argelander, with his co-workers Adelbert Kruger and Eduard Schoenfeld between 1852 and 1859. Besides giving star positions, this catalog and the subsequent Southern Sky publication in 1892 also estimated star magnitude. The name Dirk Musterung actually means thorough check, or scrutiny, according to Pond's translation services, so it's a very apt name for a star catalog. 
the Bonner Dirk Musterung cataloged about uh, 320,000 stars, while the Southern catalog, uh, the Corradoba Dirk Musterung of the Southern Sky, contributed the positions and magnitudes of 130,000 stars. Spectroscopy, or the study of a star's spectrum when the light of the star is shown through a prism, emerged in the second half of the 1800s. Star classifications and catalogs changed to include this new information. One of the first was by the Italian astronomer Father Angelo Secchi, who published a list of 316 stars in 1867. A more monumental work, the basis for our own star classifications, would appear in America, though, and the location may sound familiar if you've listened to the last episode. I talked about Harvard Observatory as at the turn of the 20th century and the women who were employed there as computers. They all contributed to the study of astronomy, but some big names that stood out when constructing the basis for our current star catalog were Antonia Mari, Wilhelmina Fleming, and Annie Jump Cannon. Fleming was initially in charge of cataloging the glass photographic plates that Henry Draper's widow, Anna Draper, had donated to Harvard Observatory. These plates contained the spectra of individual stars. The director of Harvard Observatory, Edward Pickering, hired Henry Draper's niece, Antonia Mari, to help with some computing projects. By 1890, both women had established themselves as accomplished astronomical analyzers, Maury had found multiple stars that exhibited changes in their spectra because they were actually two stars orbiting each other, and Fleming published the Draper Catalog of Stellar Spectra. Maury began refining her classifications of the stars she'd been assigned to analyze, and she was credited in later updated versions of the Draper Catalog. Annie Jump Cannon came to Harvard Observatory a few years after the death of her mother, Mary Elizabeth Jump Cannon, in 1894. I was reading about this in a book called The Glass Universe by Dava Sobel, and she includes a lot of quotes and diary entries and other primary source materials to give flavor to the history of the women computers working at Harvard. And I have to say that the section of Cannon's diary she quotes about how Cannon felt after her mother's death was utterly heartbreaking. Cannon came to Harvard, a woman in pain and reeling from the loss of a very treasured loved one, and she was assigned to determine the spectra of southern stars. Mari had already classified the northern hemisphere stellar spectra. Now Mari and Fleming had developed their own individual, basically arbitrary techniques for classifying stars based on their spectral lines, which are the lines that appear when you refract a star's light through a prism. Mari categorized stars based on the overall pattern of their spectral lines. Fleming, on the other hand, was using a different technique, one that was alphabet-based and examined the thickness and thinness of individual lines in a star's spectrum. Cannon's system that she came up with combined the two in a way that simplified both of their techniques. As Sobel puts it, quote, astronomers could not yet tie any given traits of stars, such as temperature or age, to the various groupings of spectral lines. What they needed was a consistent classification, a holding pattern for the stars that would facilitate fruitful future research. To build her own star classification system, Cannon first changed the alphabetical order Fleming was working with, so the stars she'd been classifying as type O were at the beginning of the list. This change gave precedence to the spectral lines that indicated the presence of helium in the makeup of a star, rather than emphasizing hydrogen in the spectrum. B stars came before A, and Cannon actually grouped some categories together and removed other distinctions between them. 
What she ended up with were seven letters to classify all visible stars along a continuum according to their spectra. The order went O, B, A, F, G, K, M, and some wise ass at Harvard came up with the handy mnemonic, O, B, a fine girl, kiss me, as a way to remember it. Cannon's system clarified the relationships between different stellar categories, which was hard to do because star types often share characteristics of the types of stars that fell next to each other on the spectral continuum Cannon had established, which blurred the boundaries between each star's classification. Cannon used numbers to represent these overlaps, with as much as 10 steps between each letter. An example Soba uses is a star could be classified B2A, which denotes a star with a spectrum that has B-type lines, as well as the strong hydrogen lines that appear in an A-class star. B3A stars would have more hydrogen lines, and so on. Throughout her career at Harvard Observatory, Cannon, who was partially deaf, would often disable her hearing aid to concentrate as she classified stars. As she got more and more wrapped up in her larger classification project, Fleming took over classifying the southern star photographs with Louisa Wells, Mabel Stevens, Edith Gill, and Evelyn Leland. Cannon was also put in charge of Harvard's Variable Star Catalog in 1900. Remember Variable Stars from our last episode? And within three years, Cannon had added over 20,000 index cards to this catalog. She published her database in 1903 as a provisional catalog of variable stars, though there were a lot of blank spaces in this initial publication. Sobel explains how, quote, a good number of other blank spaces in her tables pointed up other lacunae, such as missing minimum values, uncertain periods, absent spectra, or questionable variable type. Lacuna is a very good word. <laughs> There was some debate about whether Cannon's order of the star classifications, arranged from the bright blue-white O to the reddish M, suggested that the stars followed this order in their evolution. Maury thought it was an evolutionary scale, but not all astronomers did. Henry Norris Russell, also with Harvard Observatory, thought that stars started off red, warmed to yellow or white, and then cooled off to red again. He also thought stars' evolution depended on their birth size and that only massive stars could achieve the highest temperatures. As I talked about star evolution at the beginning of this podcast, we know that he was sort of right. Cannon's classification order isn't a precise evolutionary scale, but it's true that it does take stars of a certain initial size to reach certain extreme temperatures. By 1913, Cannon had classified 100,000 stars. At the meeting of the Solar Union that same year, the Committee on Spectral Classification, which created a standardized system based on Cannon's work in the Henry Draper catalog, was dissolved and renamed. Cannon herself was placed on the new Committee on Classification of Stellar Spectra as the only woman, and in her words, quote, Since I have done almost all of the world's work on this one branch, it was necessary for me to do most of the talking. She was soon classifying or reclassifying about 5,000 stars every month and had reinstituted two of the late Mrs. Fleming's categories, N and R, which created a new mnemonic, Oh, be a fine girl, kiss me right now. The Henry Draper catalog was published at Harvard Observatory between 1918 and 1924. It denoted the spectral class and magnitude of 225,000 stars and was attributed to Cannon and Pickering. Pickering died in 1919, 
and the subsequent Henry Draper extension, which classified 134,000 further stars, was published between 1925 and 1936 and attributed to canon alone. We still use the same letters in the same order, though we tend to drop R and N stars, which are carbon-based, S stars, which have heavy elements, and T stars, which are not very luminous and which have spectra that are very difficult to discern. So our classifications today go O stars, which are blue and have a surface temperature above 25,000 Kelvin. By the way, Kelvin is an absolute temperature scale, where zero Kelvin is absolute zero, or the point at which all molecules have like the lowest energy possible. This means that zero Kelvin is negative 273 degrees Celsius, or negative 460 degrees Fahrenheit. The Kelvin temperature scale follows Celsius increase, though, so when I say O stars are over 25,000 Kelvin, I mean that they're over 24,726 degrees Celsius. It's a very high temperature. O stars contain the hottest stars in canon scale. B stars, which are blue and have a surface temperature between 11,000 and 25,000 Kelvin, also have neutral helium lines in their spectra. A stars are blue with surface temperatures between 7,500 and 11,000 Kelvin. The star Sirius is actually an A star. These stars also have hydrogen lines that decrease as you get away from A0 stars and move towards the next category, F stars. F stars are blue to white, have surface temperatures between 6,000 and 7,500 Kelvin, and have noticeable metallic lines in their spectra. G stars are white to yellow, have surface temperatures between 5,000 and 6,000 Kelvin, and our sun is one! <laughs> K stars are orange to red, 3,500 to 5,000 Kelvin, and have metallic lines and weak blue continuums in their spectra. And finally, M stars, which are red, cooler than 3,500 Kelvin, and have noticeable bands of titanium oxide in their spectra. All of this is on an old web page from the University College London Astrophysics Group. I have a link to it on the website in case you want to look at it some more. New star classification catalogs continued to emerge, though, even after canons became the standard. We were still looking at the sky with increasingly new technology, and the new technology available meant that we saw new information about the stars depending on what we used to observe them. There are also always new ways to categorize or refine the classifications of an object for an individual's needs. It's why there are selected area catalogs. Why have a bunch of stars you'll never see from your hemisphere on a list if you're making practical observations? Other catalogs look at radial velocity of stars, double and multiple stars, variable stars, our good old friends, nearby bright and high velocity stars, and after 1966, photometry catalogs of stars that included stars' UBV magnitudes and colors, their infrared magnitudes, their spectral types, their polarization, and on and on and on. The Yale Bright Star Catalog is useful for astronomers who want to investigate stars that are bright enough that they have a history of being named, stars like Polaris, for example. Or there's the Hipparcos Catalog, named for the European Space Agency satellite that operated between 1989 and 1993. Hipparcos was one of those clever acronyms. It stood for High Precision Parallax Collecting Satellite, but also was a reference to the Greek astronomer I mentioned earlier, Hipparchus. The satellite Hipparchos gathered astronomical and photometric data of stars. Photometry is the study of a star's brightness and its change in brightness over time. With the high-quality photoelectric devices that the Hipparchos used, 
It was highly accurate in positioning and cataloging the star information it acquired on its four-year mission. Its data actually became two catalogs, both published in 1997. The Hipparcos catalog, which was distributed in print as well as on CDs and mapped 118,218 stars, and the Tico catalog, which was distributed only on CDs and mapped 1,058,332 of the brightest stars. The Tycho catalog, of course named after my favorite Danish astronomer in the whole history of the world, was updated with more refined imaging techniques and re-released on CDs and online in 2000 with over 2 million stars mapped. You can download these catalogs too, I'll include a link, but you better have a lot of hard drive space if you're going to try. I wasn't brave enough, I can't afford to crash my computer. <laughs> there are a ton of other star catalogs out there too. People can make their own using existing data. It's all about what you need a star catalog for. Amateur astronomers have their own societies and databases and fun challenges to try when you have a clear night, good visibility, and a decent telescope. You might want to compare a star's spectrum, though, or evaluate double stars or variables, and then it's off to find a more narrowed-down catalog or build your own. The process is really never-ending. It's a wide sandbox to play in the world of cataloging stars, and I wish anyone well who wants to try it for themselves. I'll stick to history and definitions for now. I'm a bit intimidated by all the careful measurement and detailed observations that went into the catalogs we draw on today. So, what did we learn today? Well, we talked about the life cycles of stars at first. I addressed the early star cataloging process, the pre-telescope Mulapin, Hipparchus's catalog, Ptolemy's Almagest, Uranometria by Johann Baer, and then post-telescope catalogs like Halley's catalog, John Flamsteed's, Herschel's double stars, Charles Messier's list of things that looked like comets but weren't, Dirk Musterung by Friedrich Argelander, Aldebert Kruger, and Eduard Schoenfeld, and an early spectroscopic catalog by Father Angelo Seiki. I spent a lot of time on the Henry Draper list and Annie Jump Cannon's contributions to our current cataloging system for stars based on their temperature, oh be a fine girl kiss me, all that shit. Our current classifications are wide-ranging and offer a lot of versatility and creativity to astronomers interested in particular areas of astronomical study, and a lot of them are up online to look at and download, <laughs> if you have the right software. I can't help you there, but my brother just graduated from a computer engineering program and he's going to get his master's, so maybe contact him for that. <laughs> I'd like to take a little break before we jump into spectroscopy, so I'm thinking we could go a little closer to home for the next podcast and talk about planets. I could also talk about particular astronomers. You know I could talk all damn day about my guy Tico, but actually Edmund Halley has piqued my interest too. Or Stephen Hawking. What does that guy do? Well... I have a vague idea, but I could look into it for you if you're interested. You can offer your opinion on what you think I should research next by sending me an ask on the Tumblr. You can also tweet at me, at HD in the Void. I'll respond to that as well. And since I'm on iTunes now, it would be super awesome if you could subscribe there so you always get the new episodes the day they come out. If you could rate it, maybe write a review if the spirit moves you, that would also be amazing. I would super appreciate that. I hope you heard something today that surprised you about astronomy and space. All of it inflates my bouncy castle. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to inflate your bouncy castle too. 
Tune in on June 3rd for the next episode and check out my sources, music credits, the script for this episode, and the vocab list, all at, all one word, fillthevoid-with-space.tumblr.com. Hugs and kisses from the void. HD signing off. Mm-hmm.